Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have an episode of my racing life and career. This is done with the amazing Bill Oberlin, who just beat my brother. Not my brother. We're not related. But Scott Pruitt is like family. Just beat Scott's longstanding record of 60 top-tier North American sports car wins. All-time record holder until Bill recently eclipsed this. And now is the new record holder figured let's sit down and do a bit of a deep dive in our longer form my racing life and career format and with this we framed it around the 61 wins for sure but having known bill for a little while having had the good opportunity to run bill in one race when i put together a factory diesel program for bmw at the 25 hours of thunder hill having the great bill oberlin as one of my drivers being terrified knowing how exacting he is how nothing less than perfection is where he focuses his mind in the fact that he was the kindest most supportive most humane person i could have imagined it just shocked me because his reputation not as anything negative or bad but just as someone who is an unflinching in his drive for excellence all i found was a guy who was super warm and wanted to help me make the most out of the team very much part of the bill oberlin story yes i can drive the car and do nothing more but maybe i can lend some of my experience to help you do things a little bit better or offer some different ways of thinking about doing things his influence just in testing was massive so having gotten to know bill and his dad so fun to be able to just capture some of who he is in this podcast last thing i'll mention before we get rolling while we do work around those 61 wins a little bit we don't go too crazy in that direction the stuff that i love most from this conversation are the items that don't necessarily fall into that 61 win category or some of the lesser-known aspects. So there's, of course, the big, well-known things that Mr. Oberlin has achieved in the sport. I really loved the deeper things that we got into about some items on his CV that might have been forgotten a little bit. So let's get rolling here with our pal, the amazing Bill Oberlin, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets, USA. Maybe we should start with the uh, the Oberlin family, Bill. I mean, you and your dad. Uh, heck, when you uh, when we got to have some fun at the twenty five hours of Thunder Hill, your dad is there as a photographer. He sent me a, a CD of images from that event. Uh, but you know, your dad, while possessed of many skills, he wasn't just a photographer. He was a race car driver. Had a kid who grew up, you know, wanting to do similar things. Maybe we start there because this is a family thing getting to this record, isn't it? Oh, for sure. hundred percent. I mean, my dad, you know, a lot of people knew that he was an immigrant, came from Germany and, and, you know, back in that day when he came, I don't know what it was, sixties, obviously, I, I think 62, three, four, five. I don't know the exact day. Everything was limitless in America. He could live the American dream and have anything he wanted and that and work hard and you can have things. And uh, that's what he wanted to do. So he came here, moved eventually to California and then, you know, wanted to race car. First, he was racing motorcycles. So when I was three, four, five, I was watching him race in the desert motor motorcycles. You know, he had a bull taco pursing, ripping through, <laughs> ripping through the desert, doing all the spoke. He was part of the spoke vendors, and I would I would be there. You know, running around on my little sixty cc motorcycle around the desert. My mom would, you know, watch me for the day while my dad was racing, and eventually I started racing motocross and supercross, and and then by then my dad had partnered up with a. Uh, a Porsche repair guy, and they were going to build a 911 RSR replica, essentially, and go racing. And sure enough, they did. And I was there, you know, sweeping the floors and starting from scratch. And I mean, you know, I was just maybe 12, 13, 14 years old, but I learned it right from the ground up and had to do everything my, ourselves. You know, I mean, I was taught how to do it. So eventually, when my dad won C-Ring, that was an engine that I actually built in a gearbox that I actually built. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's crazy. I love the parallels because, yeah, um, I'm two years younger, not much, but 
very similar thing. I'd grown up in my dad's shop. He was an amateur racer. So, uh, this was very much my life as well as I always tell folks I was on my dad's packing list for, uh, whatever race he was headed out to, uh, doing SCCA stuff. But what I love about this early career of yours, Bill, it's actually been maintained throughout your career. And that is many folks know of you as Bill Oberlin champion guy who's won a million races and all those things. And you're held in such high regard in the industry, but you're no different for those that know you you're no different than that kid sweeping floors throwing gearboxes together and whatnot that was really a deep part of of your culture that you have maintained whether it's visiting you at your shop and seeing some crazy power boat that you're putting together or lord knows whatever else you've never become that guy despite your success who's put himself on a pedestal or ever been afraid to stop getting your hands dirty and nicked up and cut up uh, between races as well. Before we get into some of the race wins themselves to celebrate those, Bill, maybe share some insights on that, because I believe folks need to appreciate, yeah, the wins are cool, but the guy behind them really isn't that much different than that 12 or 13-year-old. Um, totally true. I mean, and it transitioned. In the beginning, I was my dad's biggest fan, you know, and then later on, you know, when he stopped racing, I was racing. He was my biggest fan. So it's always been about family and support and all that kind of stuff. And you feel it, whether it's from your mother, or your father. And they taught me from a young age, you always have to be humble, right? I mean, this stuff could end in a second. Nothing makes you any better or different than anybody else on this planet. And uh, hard work pays off. So I was always, you know, uh, somebody that, that thought the harder you worked, you know, I, I do believe the harder you work, the luckier you get. And that is something about that. But I love I love humble people that you look at guys like Brian Redman, you know, people that are people you look up to and and they're just always the nicest people. And I said, that's what I want to be like. I don't ever want to be like the guy that that thinks he's amazing or whatever. So, uh, you know, that's I want to live by that standard and be friendly to everybody and talk to everybody. And, you know, that's so I, I like that kind of reputation better. So you have this pretty awesome achievement now in terms of wins i will admit bill to having a little bit of confusion on how this number has become what it is knowing that yes we can look at your recent weathertech championship victory and say bill's now the all-time leader but if we throw in so many of your other wins in you know Coney Challenge, Conti Challenge, Michelin Pilot Challenge today, whatever else, plus Lord knows how many other things. I don't know what the, the quote, real number is. I mean, 61 wins in top divisions is great. It'd be silly, though, to just suggest that the real number is only at 61, yeah? I don't know how I we, know I don't know what number we come up with, but it's more than 61. We have... That, that's something that Bill Cobb is going to start to work on now, I think, because the numbers really, when you add up, like you said, GS and World Challenge, all this other kind of stuff that I did, Atlantic or whatever, uh, the real number is like, I want to say 130 or 140 <laughs> wins, something like that. And so it's kind of cool, you know, I mean. That thing but, we were just talking about, humility and modesty. This, you know, let some other people win, Oberlin. Whatever, man. Well, it's, it's you know, I like winning. Man, I, I, I like being competitive, you know. And, and what drives you as an individual is ever-evolving. When, when you're young, it's about winning because you're supposed to win because you're fearless and you're young and this and that. And now that I'm on the other side and I'm 51 and I can win, it's about winning in an age that nobody should be winning or as competitive. So, it drives you to work harder. Like I've been training harder than I ever have. I've been focusing more than I ever have, digging into my competition more, like really trying to raise the level for old guys to see how long can this go on at a, at a real crazy level. And I want to find that out next. So let's talk about the early years. When I look back at your record in that uh, beautiful number 54 Porsche 911 Carrera, you and your father shared you often solo as well. I look at the record uh, or of that early starting in 87 and whatnot. I look at those very early years in the IMSA GTU category and 
at least for what comes to mind for me is you put in a lot of hours, a lot of miles. Things didn't necessarily come easy. If we're talking wins and just outright success, tell us about that because I'd say it helped build you into who you are. You also had some pretty badass competition to go up against as what was effectively a, a father and son team against some factory type uh, programs that made GTU pretty stiff. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, the 911 RSR was a it was it was sort of at the end of its reign the way it was back then. So you you weren't expected to do well except for maybe like Daytona or Sebring, where a car that car was very reliable, and a lot of the other cars weren't. So it wasn't about winning back then. It was about about being part of it you know going to daytona i remember i drove through that tunnel for the first time and looked up at the turn four bank and thought this is the most incredible thing i've ever seen right so it was it was being a participant in the events was already amazing enough i never thought about making a career of it i moved forward we we raced quite a few races in that portion like you said you get beat up on pretty good by the people that knew what they were doing there were factories out there then i don't know if it was probably Mazda RX-7s and Nissan 300ZXs, all these other cars that were just way faster. And I was I was learning my craft. I mean, I was okay at it. Oh, good. I was relatively reasonably good at it. Um, but but you had to you had to put in the work. You have to put in you had to put in the hours like you said and then all of a sudden things start to click. And it really clicked once we sold the Porsche and bought an RX-7 from uh, basically a Roger Mandeville RX-7. Yeah. Once once we bought that car, and it was a band of brothers. It was myself, and we were all Porsche repair mechanics at a shop. And there was like three other guys, and we worked eight to five at our daytime job, and literally six to ten every single night on this RX-7, building our own motors, doing our own body work, doing you name it, we did it, and then we'd... You know, the team would fly to the track, the guys. I would drive the truck to the track in a little moving van. We'd get there. Early on, we didn't even have a liftgate. I would have to pull up next to somebody, one of our competitors with a liftgate, and ask them if we could take our car out. It was that crazy, right? And this is what we'd pull up with. And eventually, got, we got really good at it. And then we became competitive. And then early 90s, uh, I think it was 93, the big break finally came, and I won in Elkhart Lake. And from that day forward, once you find your way to victory lane – and uh, you're, it's a lot easier to find your way again. That's the only thing is you need to find your path there, and that takes time, and then, and then you know how to get there again. But like you said, it's the hours you put in. It's the hard work. It's that moment when you think, this is too much. Every phone call that was coming to me was somebody I owed money to. I've told people this before. <laughs> and and it, wasn't about, it wasn't about making a career. It was about just wanting to be there. I wanted to race. I didn't know you could make a living doing this. And then uh, – and then eventually when that break comes and things start to happen and all of a sudden you get a few sponsors and you could just pay the bills and go racing. And then we became very good. We started to win a lot of races with that RX-7 and we became people uh, a factor that people feared. It was pretty cool. The team name too. It's so awesome. It's so period correct. Auburn Racing Concepts. Yeah, I mean, you like that. That oh is, God. if you don't have some retro shirts and hats made, I mean, we we got to get some of those going. So <laughs> we still have the originals. My dad wore one from back in the day, just the other day, and it was Auburn Racing Concepts with that whole little logo. It was so, it's so ridiculous, but it is, it is all you could think of as a kid. I guess I wasn't that imaginative when it was <laughs> when it came to that stuff. So we're going to dive into some of the the career defining wins here in a second, Bill. But I thought it we'd be smart to uh, look at what this period meant for you in your career development. And what comes to mind is we have some. If I'm thinking open wheel, where karting is often the place where uh, drivers get their start. You have some who show talent in karting. And they are swiftly moved up the ladder uh, into a you know two liter F two thousand car or whatever else. But there's a urgency. Ah, talent's been demonstrated. Rush them to the top. And in some instances, those kids will get to say IndyCar. You'll find some holes in their game because they just didn't put in the time in the lower rungs to flesh out uh, or or solve any of the 
things that they were missing or amplify the things they're good at. I love the fact that for you, we're looking at what, five, six years in GTU, uh, you know, the, the quote, slowest class in uh, the original IMSA series. But I look at the uh, duration of time you spent, and it really does stand out to me that once you got that win at Elkhart, once things started to pick up for you and your name became something that folks really needed to pay attention to, you were a guy who was ready to burst onto a bigger scene stepping up from class to class share some insights on what spending those years in the lower class and figuring a lot of stuff out what that did for you man because that seemed to be the springboard that had you right there ready to deliver in much bigger cars once you got that call um at the time you don't realize even what you're well i didn't realize what i was doing but spending all that time in there seeing every situation unfold, making the mistakes, not making those mistakes again, developing your racing library, I call it, of everything that you need to be strong. And it is, lo and behold, you build this foundation that was a super solid foundation with not a lot of holes in it. You you like to hope, right? And um, you didn't realize you were doing that. I didn't realize I was doing that. But then when I moved up, I had a very good handle on a lot of stuff, like from setup of cars to designing and building things to engines. I was super sympathetic to all everything mechanical. Like I understood it really well. So if something were happening or something needed to be revised or fixed, I could really partake in that and move it along much quicker. Um, so these were my strong suits and it developed a pretty good game, not to mention the racing. I was, I was getting to be fairly fast, you know, like in the same cars with people I could, I could, once I got into the 90s and I got that big break with BMW, I was I was pretty – that was like some some good times where there were a lot of good guys that came along and I was able to always maintain some sort of a dominance. I, I, I don't know how to put that without sound weird, but I was very strong through all those years against everybody in those GT cars just because for some reason the day I drove that BMW, day one, I'm like, this is where I belong. I, under, I understand this car. I understand this feeling. I'm not afraid of any part of it. There's no way this car is going to get away from me. And uh, and I felt like I could just manhandle that thing to 120% of every lap everywhere I went. And that was a really nice way to, to go racing for a manufacturer. So before we get to this amazing relationship with uh, the Milner family and BMW, and then you mentioned that the first win, uh, call it regular IMSA win, came in 93 at Elkhart Lake. But wouldn't I be remiss in, in saying that I believe your first win, if we're talking GTU, was a little bit across the water in uh, yeah. in Japan in in your same exact GTU car? Um, yeah. Yep. The Japanese GT Invitational race at Fuji. For folks who don't know about this, the IMSA GT Challenge at Fuji. This was a crazy thing a special invitation where we got a number of IMSA teams that headed over, not a ton, but some you tell us about that bill. Cause it's such a forgotten portion of IMSA's history. And I love the fact that of course you got your first win there. <laughs> I got to start by saying, I wish, wish, wish they would take us over there again. It was some of the best uh, days of my life. When we finally, we got the invitation to, uh, I guess that Japanese racing program would come over and invite, I don't know, six or seven cars to go over, whether it was, I think, GTO, GTU. And, um, and we were one of the guys that got invited over. And we, we did this a few times. We did Fuji, I think, Autopolis a couple of different times. And I think you said it was the Fuji one when we got there. And we tested. Our car was very good there. And we were quickest in practice sessions, or and things were looking great. And I remember right before... Uh, a couple hours before um, the race, we were to start our engines and make sure we warm it all up, make sure everything's running. And for some reason, we had somebody looking at the air cleaner. He was talking to fans and spectators, very strange, and he got distracted. And when he put it all back together and put it down, we started the motor, and uh, the motor seized up instantly. So it went and just locked up. And we're like, what just happened here? And we opened the air box up. And he, the rags he put in the intake stacks, he forgot to take them out, and they got stuck right in the motor. Oh, 
Motors dead, <laughs> locked up. We're we're thousands of miles away from home, ready to do this race. And so all we could think of was uh, pour, um, we poured gas or ether on it and started lighting the rags on fire until everything was trying to burn up. It started getting fifth gear, and we started trying to rock the car to see if we could break the rags loose. And we broke it loose, and it ran, and none of the apex seals were broken. They're carbon apex seals, and the thing ran, and we win the race. Can you imagine that? Oh, I wanted to murder this guy. I was so mad. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that was my first IMSA win. It was it was just an incredible story. And then the best part of it is in Japanese culture, when you win, they hand you a stack of cash with a really beautiful bow around it. And I'm like, no way. We had all this money. We were it was like ten thousand dollars or something like that, which was huge at the time. I we brought it home. Moving to Japan and racing for the rest of my career, says Ireland. Oh, oh yeah, exactly. I thought this is fantastic. And then we did it again. Went to Autopolis and we won again when we went there the second time, I think. So yeah, it was it was great. Fantastic. So your career starts to pick up uh momentum for sure. And what I love looking at uh here, before we get to this amazing PTG relationship or uh even when you're doing a variety of things, you're getting calls from uh, a number of folks to come be a part of their racing programs might be a one-off here or there, but there yeah, are a lot yeah. of teams that are asking you to come play. Alex Job uh, says, Hey, you know, let's go do some things. Uh, there's a number of other folks. I know that we're kind of moving into the mid nineties a little bit, but Hey, there's some Bill Harberlin names on some Ferrari 333 SPs. Um, yeah. There's, Hen- Henry Canfordam, I love this, in his home-built Hawk world sports car, right? I mean, there's some diversity, this? too. It, you know, it's not all linear, you know, Porsche, Mazda, BMW type stuff for you. There's some fun in there, too. Oh, yeah. I, was, I figured opportunity is good no matter what. You'll learn something even from a from a not the fastest car you'll learn something and then you get in the fastest car and you could utilize it to make things better just mileage and racing is always just going to make you better so that was kind of my my train of thought plus that that henry camferdam thing was crazy because i was supposed to be racing full-time in the momo 333 sp for that whole year right so we get i don't know if you remember that year but we get to the roar and our car was i was i set a new lap record yeah. at 333 like it was, we were the quickest guys when we left out of the roar. I mean, we were in good shape. And then I was standing there with John Morton, who was going to be my co-driver. The other guy's name was Tim. I forgot his name now. The money guy. Yeah. He didn't. He didn't show up the whole time. And and uh, Kevin Dorn's like, hey, where's he? Owes me a check. We can't run the car if if the check doesn't come. Well, but I'm here for the Daytona 24 hour race, right? And um, lo and behold, the guy never shows up. Check Tim Hubman. Comes. Tim Hubman. Tim Hubman. That's exactly who that. Was. <laughs> So the check never comes. They wheel the car away essentially, and that my car is the one now. I think that Tim pa- uh, Pap Max Pappas drove yeah. the, the victory, right, or whatever. And um, so that was that. And what happened was uh, because I was I had no ride. Henry Canfordham put me in his car for that race, and then I drove with him for a while. And so out of something bad came something great and well, reasonably good. Let's stop here for just a sec before we get into a lot of uh, GT stuff. The move to prototypes. What was that like for you? Because every driver that gets a chance, having spent many years in GTs, says lots of great things. I got downforce and it's light and all kinds of stuff. But how much did the car make sense? The cars make sense to you immediately? Or, or how much did you have to pick up? Um, well, when I drove the, the standard prototype cars, like the Rileys, and stuff like that, or the Hawk, you know, these type of cars, they drive like a, a really, really, really amazing GT car. So it's not that far away. You know, it, it's got more downforce. They drive easy, simple. That was no problem. And then, um, I drove a Riley and ISRS or something like that in Europe with a BMW, uh, power plant. And I drove the whole European circuit over there in that car. And then I came back and then I got adopted into the, uh, BMW V12 program, and that was a whole departure. That car was designed to be fairly light on downforce and go super fast in straight line. It was designed basically just to win Le Mans. So to get that opportunity to drive it, um, 
you know, I was I was in there. I mean, the the best guys at the business. The problem was was JJ Leto was really a, a hard nut to crack. The guy was so good in those cars. I had JJ's number when it came to the to the GT cars, and I think he had my number when it came to that V12 LMR. He was incredible in those things. There's always one guy. So all you do is you just pit yourself up against a guy like that to try to take him off the top step. I had him a few times, but, you know, I mean, I was teamed up with Joe Winklehawk, and then the next year I was teamed up with, uh, I don't know, I forgot his name now. But Soper or? Um... Uh, no, Soper was with JJ. Oh, okay. Soper and. And uh, so they were on that car over there. What the heck was his name? Anyways, recently I raced against his kid now. It was so funny. I'm, I'm transcending generations. I, I've been around <laughs> so long. And it's happened a lot. Like, if you think, I was teamed up with Brian Herta, then I'm teamed up with his, his son, right, Colton. And then, uh, you know, the Prio, Prio's gone, and now I'm racing against his kid. So it's kind of neat to, to I'm, I'm outliving all of them. That on the is, track, anyways. Yeah, that's uh, but that's part of the fun, though, for sure. That is for me. So, I'll see if I can make it to a third generation. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Colton, get busy. We need yeah, a kid. Yeah, get busy already. Come yeah, on, you slacker. He is funny. That kid. He is. That guy is really good. He doesn't even know how good he is. That's the funny thing. That's uh, what's crazy. We were just talking about him yesterday. That he could be one of the great guys. You know. Wow. Uh, Tom Milner. PTG, I know that there's some Matco in there and whatnot, but uh, yep. we have, I know for BMW fans, a very rich vein of E36 M3s that folks just love. Looked great, sounded amazing. This was a, a period of your career where when I think about making a statement with a manufacturer and transitioning from, yeah, we can throw Bill into anything and he's going to deliver, but this is, uh, we're seeing the the real roots of Bill Oberlin, factory man, the guy that factories can trust uh, with their racing programs. Share some insights, Bill, on getting to know uh, Tom, getting uh, another immigrant, uh, probably familiar feel there from a family standpoint, BMW as well. And this is where I would say the anchor of your career is really, really dropped. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, but imagine there's a, this was like meant to be a little bit where Tom and my dad immigrated from Germany in the same year. Aaron, his daughter and I were born on the same day. Right. So there's so many parallels that he had to take me. He had no choice. He's like, this is God's will. There's not, we can't not do this. Um, but when I drove for Tom, Tom was, a um, Tom was equally as competitive as I was. You know, I, I'm quietly, more quietly, when you put me in that car that I want to just run over through and around everybody. Tom, his whole motivation when he was racing was we we're going to win at all costs, right? And sometimes all costs is crazy what he would put into it to win. But as, as, a, as a driver, all you want is somebody that's willing to put in everything to win. And that was Tom. Tom was... Tom was crazy. I mean, he is, he wants to win as bad as anybody and he will, he will fight, you know, off the track harder than anybody. And I'll fight on the track. So we made a good, we made a really good pair. I mean, Tom would get mad at drivers and he fired every single driver he's had every, at least once. And he never fired me. I was the only guy he never fired. Wow. Yeah. So you guys, you put up a pretty big win here at uh, the the 24 hours of Daytona class win in 97 and follow uh, and the team follows it up as well um, looking at their success uh, tell me about coming into a program where expectations are obviously high but you can also say that all right this is a team that can deliver I need to go out and deliver for them and they really do want as big of victories as possible because there's real expectations here, right? It's a lot different than, hey, we did well in the family-run program. Tell me about delivering under pressure. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't, I don't, I absolutely remember in GTLM with Ray Hall, pressure. And the pressure comes, it came from every direction. And if you don't, if you don't like pressure, it's going to be a very tough experience. I don't remember 
any pressure from the PTG days. Maybe maybe I was so oblivious to understanding expectations that it was just I was just there to drive. I don't remember, but I don't remember ever feeling like, oh, I got to do it or this has got to happen. I just remember being free. And when you're free as a race car driver, sometimes you can perform really well. And I was always just unleashed, told you know what to do, and I could always seem to achieve what the expectations were. So it was never – I never felt – bad or weird or strange and then you talk about 97 in daytona i think it's 97 and um as a team uh we were racing we were leading we had a, a very good lead and all of a sudden the windshield started breaking in on the car i don't know if you ever did you ever see that i so don't the, think i don't recall that we had an onboard camera and uh at the end of the race we were just trying to make it and on the straightaways the windshield was actually caving in so we, we were all holding the windshield up with our hand right <laughs> and so tom is imps like hey your, your windshield falling apart. Tom's like, no, it's totally fine. No problem. They go, we, we see the onboard camera. Tom Hester's holding the windshield up, right, with his hand. And Tom's like, really? So at the very late stages, they made us replace the windshield. And uh, we were losing the laps while this was happening. And I remember that car sitting in, you know, when you're done, you look at it. And the dedication, this was a team of a band of, of people that were going to go to war for each other. You looked all around this car, and there was blood all up and down both sides of the car. Of, of the windshield pillar of where these guys grabbed these windshields, cut their fingers, laid the new one in and try to, you know, they, and it was, there was just get this thing done at all costs. And this is how dedicated these guys were. And that's how I felt every single day. These guys worked so hard and Tom was leading the ship and you know, Tom, Tom is, I mean, he's, he's a tough guy to deal with sometimes him and I always understood each other, but this group of guys, I miss those days because it was, uh, it was the best group of guys you could race with. Speaking of racing with, I love the, well, we clearly didn't do personality assessments when we have Bill Oberlin, Pete Halsmer, Boris said in a car, for example, you go, well, we have represented some polar opposites here. Pete, obviously so highly renowned for his skills, just maybe not known as the world's biggest extrovert. You've got Boris, the original uh, doesn't give a F guy of all time. And then we've got you as well, a lot of fun, high character guy, but also very serious on the job. I mean, this seems like they said, let's pick three different personality types and see if they can succeed. And you guys did. Tell me about that. That had to be uh, unique. Well, I will tell you that extrovert of Boris said worked out a lot of times because you, if you fielded an idea and Pete and I were way too, we would never bring it up because we'd get killed for it. Boris had no fear of going in. I don't care who it was. He would let him have it, whether it was Dom Panos, you know, letting him have it. Like, you need to hire Americans instead of these European guys. I remember when we won Daytona, they weren't giving watches to uh, the GT guys, only prototype at the time. And when we got on stage, uh, the trophies were handed to us by the president at, at that time of Rolex. And they interviewed Boris, and Boris told on the PA system, you guys are so cheap for not giving us watches. That's really cheap of you guys. And he says it on the PA system as he's in victory lane. And the crazy thing was he got a, they gave him a watch for that race. And then from then on, everybody got watches in all classes. Look at that. Boris said, yeah, because Boris. So that's, that's, uh, that's good. I remember watching him and his pal Beaver Theodosakis running around in the mid to late eighties here on the West coast in showroom stock cars and such. And it was just so cool to see him. Uh, yeah. develop into what what he's become so crazy. boris he, comes out of the full grassroots and if there's anybody who made it for themselves it was him i mean that guy was destined to make it he did a great job so let's move forward a little bit bill here we start getting into some fun prototype stuff as you mentioned uh with the bmw uh that glorious v12 um we did some fun uh onboard recordings with that a couple of years ago i loved your suggestion yeah. of like yeah, it's a little bit quiet and muffled in the in the cockpit here. Why don't you throw it between the exhausts at the back of the car? I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. I'm sure the guys will let you do it. We did. It's the best soundtrack I've ever recorded, so that was a lot did of fun. It, did it sound good? It sounded good. That oh, was awesome. my God. Yeah, and you're an animal. Uh, low downforce, and I think the tires are worn, too. So it's just oh, yeah. wheel spin cinema here. But you start moving into uh, bigger, faster things. You get some opportunities to move outside of BMW. Obviously, we have some 
pretty amazing stuff. Well, granted that, uh, the team Raffinelli stuff with BMW was pretty amazing, but also Lamar beckons McLaren's good Lord. Oh yeah. Tell me about moving your career international. Uh, and I know obviously winning in Japan's international, but, uh, being a guy that got to go do Lamar many times and some pretty impressive cars, I would have to imagine that also sits with you as something you're pretty proud of. Yep, both. It, that's uh, of all the races that I've done. That's the one that I haven't won. You know, when I've raced all the other ones and I've won mostly everything else, that one drives me nuts because I've had some reasonably good cars there, but for some reason just haven't been able to clinch it. But that is an incredible event, and you got to look at it a couple of ways. That was BMW made that McLaren thing for me to happen so that I would gain experience. Uh, over in Le Mans and be part of their program when when necessary to go over. Uh, so it shows the kind of faith they have in you, which I always appreciated. Uh, but man, what an event! It is basically the Indy 500 or whatever of of sports car racing. It's the biggest event that there is for sports car racing in my mind. So when I went over there, it's absolutely incredible, and I loved it. But to drive that McLaren, I think I've told you this before. Man, when I drove that car and you listen to that sound and you are barreling down the Molson straight and you go for the brakes and you can see everything start glowing and fire come up the trees, you know, from the flames. I thought, holy cow, I'm so good looking in this car. I look so much better. I have more hair. I guarantee you I'm taller. That car made me feel incredible to drive. It it had gave you such a sense that it was it was like a work of art that you were driving you you so so on the one hand you didn't want to ring it out and go crazy because you didn't want to wreck it because you thought you would be smashing a picasso into the wall but it gave you this incredible feeling like no other car i've ever driven and when you told me that story the first time the first thing that came to mind knowing that that mclaren f1 gtr is a three-seater is like what a perfect race to have your dad in the car with a camera shooting you right because i've, I've it, taken my dad for rides in those mclarens before on the racetrack <sighs> yeah he loved it at fontana of no of all places you know cinematic endeavors here uh yeah, father yeah. capturing son at speed so you also have some other cool stuff got to go there in a prototype obviously uh the following year in a bmw v12 then you got a couple of entries at Le Mans bill with panos and their roadster uh in 2002 what is that like compared to uh say your closed cockpit debut there in 98 uh, going there in a front engine (laughs) machine um fully exposed that had to be a very different experience as well Yep, and it was poised. It was. I went with Brian Herta. I think David Donahue was on my team. Gunner, I think, think might have been. Gunner was on, and and I'm like, this is going to be amazing, right? And we we tried to do some testing on airport cir- uh, circuits to see how fast the car would go because it just got a revised bodywork. The old bodywork work everybody knew was one of the fastest cars in Le Mans on the Mulsanne of any car, and the new bodywork nobody really knew. Well, once we unloaded it and took off, we figured out real quick we were really down on top speed and we were in trouble so and this is when um shoot i forgot his name but he's ex bmw guy with us forever uh he drove a, a panos camera car around the track the old old one and he wasn't even in the race just driving around with the camera on the car what was that guy's name anyways when he passed us down the mulsan and we're in a full factory panos i thought oh boy this is gonna be a long day anyways eventually the motor blew up on that one and I also drove for Panos in the GT car, the yeah. Esperante, right? This was the fastest car in the class. I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be great. And I'm leading the race. I start the race. I'm leading the race. And this thing was sealed up tight as a drum inside. And imagine you only do 9, 10, 11 laps. Uh, Brian Sellers was in the other Panos that we had. So it was Brian Sellers, myself, Scott Maxwell. I was with uh, uh, Liddell, Robin Liddell. And um, – and I'm leading the race, and I'm driving, and I'm like, I am really hot. I'm getting, I'm just burning up in here. And they're like, okay, keep going, keep going. It's my first stint. It's one of those hot summer days in in Le Mans. And I'm trying to use the drink bottle. It's you know, you press the button. The water that was in the hose was burning my face. I was actually feeling it burn all around my face. And and I make it to like one lap before the end of the stint. I'm starting to black out. I go, I I actually can't go anymore. They're, okay, pit now, pit now. I go in. I give it to Robin. Off I go. I'm like, this is going to be the world's longest 24 hours of my life. I get out of the car. I go to a chair, and my feet are burning. So I put them in ice water. I got towels all around me. 
And at this time, uh, Patrick Dempsey was a guest of Dom Panos. And he's handing me, and I've never, I didn't see him there at all. And he hands me this ice cold towel. He's like, put this around your neck, it'll be good. And I'm like, oh, wow, you're a doctor. You know what you're doing. So, you know, it was a joke. And, um, and I look over and I see Brian Sellers. He started the other car. And I'm thinking, man, he looks, he looks good. Like he wasn't all burned up. And I, my wife at the time was there with me and we're sitting and I don't want to say anything because I don't want to be the wimp. And, and I, and after like 30 minutes, I say, I say, what the heck happened? How come Brian looks so good? I'm still sitting here in water dying. And she goes, oh, he got out like five laps before you. He couldn't take it at all. I'm like, oh, thank God. Thank God. I, I hung in there. Anyways, they, our car blew up three hours into the race and theirs made it to like 21 hours of them fighting this thing and theirs blew up at 21 hours. It was crazy. The happiest DNF of your career, oh, it sounds like. Oh, my God. Could you, I never had to get back in the car. It was done before I ever got back in. But it was so fast, you want to win. But, man, yeah, the, those the, things were strung out. The toll uh, exacted for that. You yeah, know, It would have been hard. During this year, a little bit before this, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about and This is a car that you won in at Petit Le Mans. I know in 2001 there's you know other success as well. But we're talking BMW M3 E46 GTR. That yeah. pissed off some rivals. Hey, that's not the way you can buy it at the factory. And, you know, as, as fans, we collectively said, shut up. It's amazing. <laughs> could you tell us about that car, Bill? Because oh, if we could get that back in IMSA today, we'd double the ratings. Do you know if that car came back today, it would still be competitive to a point? Because we did a 59 in Sebring. What was that, 2000? And um, it's... It's we're just below that in the M6s now, so that's how far ahead of the game that thing was. Uh, it was the most incredible car, almost that I've balanced and driven. Still, when you drive it now, they have one in their arsenal here in America, and we drive it stars and stripes. Um, best sounding car by far. It was incredible sounding, flame throwing, perfect power delivery from this. I think it was a four liter four liter V8. Yep. The power delivery was so perfect for the Yokohama tire at the time that it, it was just on the verge of spinning it, the tires, but not the whole way up the power band. And um, we were always told to go, you know, we were we were killing seconds out of the lap times in the in the day in order to not beat up on the competition too much. But that gives you an idea how far ahead these things were of their time. Uh, the Porsches never stood a chance. I remember we went to Sears Point, and at this time Corvette was racing in G, I don't know what the class is, GT1 maybe, something like that. And uh, we could have probably outrun them in Sears Point with these little cars. They were so amazing. And then the problem was with that was you can't put two roosters in the hen house. And we raced against Schnitzer. Schnitzer came with the two factory cars. We had the two American factory cars. And we just kept upping our game. When we should have just been holding back and being smart, we started throwing gauntlets down and getting to fights with the Germans, it, it, it was only about beating them, and they were only about beating us. I mean, so much so, we won Petit Le Mans with that car. I was leading the race at the end, at the very last stint, when we're leading, and all you should be doing is bringing it home. Uh, Schnitzer had the fast race lap at the time, and I remember in the last stint, uh, Tom made Yokohama mount up almost some qualifying tires, <laughs> and I put those on to try to get the fast race lap. He wanted it so bad at the end, so he could take it all from them. It was it was. It was a crazy year, but short-lived after that. The series, basically, you know the story. They made us get rid of the car, and then we couldn't race it anymore. Unless they were going to put like 250 pounds on it. We actually went and tested it with all this weight on it and knew that it wouldn't, it wouldn't be competitive. So another fun Bill Oberlin note here career-wise, and again, so many of the things that you've achieved, Bill, are associated with these famous cars and such. You look in like... 2002 it's just a sneaky part of your resume that i love so you've got the panos lmp1 program that you're doing that's great and all but hey you're also staying busy doing some grand am events and whatnot you and court wagner the the ferrari of washington 360 modena you guys are winning up a storm there and so if we're looking at this record of victories, again, there's a lot of highlight vehicles that stand out. Maybe share some thoughts about some of those victories with whether it's court or some of the maybe lesser known 
cars or series where you go, they're all part of that number. They're equally as important, but maybe not as well remembered. Yep. That was, that was kind of an interesting year because BMW, we, we pulled out for a year to take a break. They allowed me to go racing. So I, I wound up getting that LMP one deal with Panos on the American Le Mans side. And, uh, and then I also raced, I was supposed to just do Daytona with Court Wagner and I forgot his other guy's name that I was with uh, in Daytona. So I go to Daytona. We're racing. I actually liked the car. The car was fun. 360 GT, Ferrari of Washington. Off we go. Cortina, uh, 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 Constantine Bertuzzi or whatever. And the Derek Cope, the NASCAR driver. So we're all teamed up in the car in Daytona. And we're doing good. The car is good. And um, it broke a gearbox, I think, in the middle of the night. So we had to retire the car. That was that. And then I thought, oh, that'll be fun. That was a, a one-time deal. Then they called me back to see if I want to do the whole year. And the races didn't conflict. It was perfect. And I ran the whole year. And we won a lot of really cool races, Court and I. We were racing against the Mosler, I think, with um, – uh, what's his name? Man, I forget a lot of names lately. Well, it's, but there's so, so long many, ago. Well, that's the thing, Bill. You've raced in 27,000 different championships with oh like 14 gosh. million co-drivers. So uh, I do remember the Mosler, though. That thing was a wacky machine. It was, and it was between us and them the whole year. Porsches and stuff were in there too, but we just seemed to be the class of the field between the two of us, and we beat them by not a lot of points, but we did. Uh, we did win the championship, so that was that was uh, that was a great year winning with those guys. And then the Panos, you know, the offshoot of racing for them in the in the in the year with um, Brian Herta. That was a that was a fun program to be a part of too. You know, the last couple things I'd love to cover here, Bill. So we get into the mid two thousands. BMW's back. Um, we've got you know you're you're running in a variety of series. Siegel Sport, for example, jumps out. Where for many years of your career now, full factory, pro, you name it. There's also this, I would say, somewhat cool aspect or, or offshoot where there's some names next to yours on a number of cars where you go okay, that's not a pro driver, but this is someone who named the team BMW or otherwise have said, hey, uh, here's an opportunity, or maybe you found the opportunity in your own, and all of a sudden you're making uh, some gentleman drivers, pro-am drivers, much better than they were before they met you, and you're going out and having success racing not only full pro stuff, but there's also a, a growing element of your career where yeah you're going to find bill in some other races too where maybe it's one step down or who knows what it is from the top class but there's going to be some some names that you aren't familiar with but they're going to go find success and those drivers are going to have uh the time of their lives and the best periods of their careers in race cars tell me about that man because i don't know if every factory pro type driver would embrace such a thing Really? Well, as long as you're still racing at a at a top tier level, like whether I'm with Ray Hall or Turner and GTD, and I'm and that's my foundation. That's my bread and butter. That's where I can race with the pros and show what you got. Then I get to head over to like a different form. Like this year, let's say it's World Challenge, so it's a pro am. I'm teamed up with an amateur, and you each guy puts in their work, and you can still win races. And you can, at the same time, develop drivers, whether it was – imagine, I've been teamed up with a lot of young guys, the Joey Hans, the Justin Marks, Robbie Foley's. I mean, there's a list of a lot of drivers that when they've come through and we've teamed up together, uh, they've gone professional or they've done very well in their careers. But I love also the aspect of being able to to help somebody along you know, with their career, give them a lot of the tools. Because I, I feel like I could fast-track people now, knowing what I know now – I'm way smarter than when I was so naive and didn't know what I was doing, but I can definitely input and make them faster, quicker. And then when, like when I race with Seagull Sport and we're in a prototype car, we we at the top tier of racing. I take this guy, this this kid, and we win Homestead, and we're Matthew up on the podium. Alpha Def, I think. Yeah. Uh, okay, that was one of the. Don't even say his name because that guy's one of the least worthy causes of all the drivers I've been with. That's the crazy thing. But but um, there's a lot of guys that have been that have had, we've had good success. Like look at James Walker this year that I'm with. And, uh, we won VIR two races, finished second. We won road America, uh, the 
couple days ago we finished second there as well. So, yeah, these guys that have never won a race in their life, you know, once they, I give them a little bit of a direction and we, we can team up and we become a very effective pair. And now we're winning races. Luggage Express cool. Team Seagull Sport BMW, one of the most famous names in all of racing. But that's, that's again, it. that's the cool part. And we throw in you and Will Turner. And you guys in the touring car class were the most devastating thing to hit World Challenge. Um, that's, again, just celebrating your achievements, Bill. I love that we can look at the variety almost, and I'm kidding, or not kidding, but, you know, when I say luggage express Team Seagull Sport, it's at the far end of things that folks might remember, but it depicts the fact that, you know, if there's an award for being uh, the plug-and-play all-star, that's something that has certainly been one of the key features of your career. Let me ask one or two things to close so you mentioned Atlantics, and I happen to recall seeing you in some open wheel stuff. That might be another thing that folks don't totally remember. How did that come together? And were you surprised knowing your heavy GT and even prototype background that uh, this very different form of racing is not something that took, I would say, much time at all for you to adapt to right away? Uh, well, the the reason it happened was because at the time Yokohama was, was my sponsor uh, in the Mazda RX-7, and they were also the tire manufacturer for Atlantic. So they kind of invited me over to do it, and I raced for a guy named Dave White. Yes, and the great my Dave first, White. <laughs> yeah, whatever happened to that guy? Do you know him? Do you, is he still around? He is. Oh, I, gosh, I absolutely I, believe uh, that's the last thing that I heard that he was. But, yeah, I mean, this guy's a legend, Super V in particular, and then Atlantic's when that took over. Yep. And then, um, you know, I went. they took me to Miami, and that's when Patrick Carpentier and all these guys were in that series. And I went there in first practice. I stru- struggled a little bit, but then we made some modifications of the car. And then I battled Patrick for the win, you know, and I finished second in my first time out. And I thought, oh, this is something. And – we raced a few more races, Homestead, not not a whole lot, but then I was on my way to getting an opportunity to go IndyCar racing, and I was working stuff out with, I think it was Carl Hogan, Hogan Racing wow. back in the day. Wow. Yeah, and, uh, and we were in talks, and at the same time when I was maybe going to be able to get like a, a few race deal, BMW came along and gave me a three-year deal, so then I... I went with that. And that three-year deal has now parlayed into almost 26 years. If you can imagine that. I had no idea there was an Indy, Hogan IndyCar angle. Oh, that's the best. I worked uh, yeah. for Carl in 99 in cart. Oh, that is so was, awesome. And they had such a good team at the time. They had that Mercedes power, and it was, I mean, it was, it was definitely a competitive team. And I think J.J. Leto went yep. to go racer for a little while, right? Yeah, yeah and then awesome. he was followed by some guy named Elio Castroneves, whatever happened yeah. to him. Yeah, who was, um, who was that guy? Wow. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, I mean, things could have changed. I mean, I mean, NASCAR never really appealed to my sense of what I wanted to do. But whether it was IndyCar or sports car at that time, I just – was looking for some kind of longevity and BMW was willing to give it to me. And along the way, I, you know, I mean, I had opportunity to go race for Porsche, which was one of the most amazing stories, but, but, uh, I still took BMW at the end of the day. We have this pretty amazing top tier number of 61 wins. We've discussed some of them. Are there any that you hold as highlights personal favorites and such where you go okay either the win at that event because the event was important has meaning or folks don't know how hard i had to work to get the victory at the uh, what whichever particular race well i would say all of the above happened at petit le mans last year right so so there were so many lines that were converging at the same day it was my birthday right uh we were battling for the to tie scott pruitt uh, those points that we, by winning that race, we put ourselves second in the championship, and it was a knockdown, dragout battle between myself, the Mercedes, and the Audi, and we were nose to tail for the last hour and a half. We didn't know how it was going to turn out, and it was it was going to get rough and tumble at the end. 
and on the last lap, I was able to get by the Mercedes and win the race. And it was kind of dramatic, and uh, it was such a relief to to cross that line ahead of everybody. I've I've actually never quite had that feeling before. Mm, that was if you want to talk about planets aligning and uh, someone saying, "All right, Bill, you're getting it all today." Uh, yeah, that was certainly. That- that was it let's, by far. Yeah. Let, let's close on this. And it's not meant to be a negative or challenging question, but I know that I've seen some folks send this in. The fact that you have passed Scott Pruitt, not related, but refer to him as not my brother, but a dear friend that the two of you have had some folks say, well, yeah, okay, great. But Bill has spent his entire career in sports cars but Pruitt, you know, he went off and did IndyCar, he did NASCAR, he did all kinds of other things. If you look at the number of wins that Pruitt got, shorter time and this, that, and the other, there, there's some folks who want to dismiss your achievement based on, I don't know, what agenda, my man. Do you let any of that register, and I'm not asking you to defend yourself or, you know, yeah. against that nonsense, but... Do you let any of that stuff in or do you just sit back and say, Hey, this is a pretty cool thing I've been able to do in my career. If someone else wants to criticize it or, or poke holes in it, that's on them. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think, I mean, if you want to, if you want to say, don't you, this is off print. Cause I, uh, I have all the respect for all these people. So I, I told the first person I thanked was Scott Pruitt for setting the bar so high, right? I said this on TV for from making it so worthy of a thing that if I even could get in your air, I was I was elated, right? So, but he did spend a lot of time in a Ganassi car that nobody could beat for year after year. So he's just, you know, getting win after win after win after win after win. So, and those times don't happen anymore. Or, you know, just like when Lucas Lewis in Muscle Milk that nobody raced these guys; they just won every single race. But no, absolutely not. None of that. It bothers me at all. I mean, it's it's an accomplishment. However, I did it. However slow I did it, I stuck with it and I did it. So, they if if they think they can do it easier, then go for it. You know, I I don't know. If to me, it's it's it was it's kind of a highlight of my career. So I'm pretty happy with it. I am never. Uh, I never ceases to amaze me the negatives folks can find in positives. So knowing yeah. that you're not a guy that dwells on the negatives. Doesn't surprise me at all. So the other thing too, which is maybe the other component about this, I don't know if there's an answer, but I do know that it is pretty darn crazy. I take pride in the fact that the two leaders in this category, Bill Oberlin, Scott Pruitt, California boys, is there something in the water? What is it that may, I mean, what are the odds of two guys from the same state uh, being the clear record holders here? in sports car victories. Isn't that weird? Because it's, it's kind of a European type series. When you see all the famous names that have come through, they're all a lot of European guys, but I, I don't know. It's just, I, I actually don't have an answer for that. You probably got a better one. I'm sure you, cause we're awesome. I cause think, we're awesome. Right. Yeah, exactly. Naturally. So, everybody yeah. loves Californians. Sorry. I read the daily news and everyone <laughs> seems to hate us, but that's okay. Uh, Bill Arbelin, man, the the fun part is I have a full confidence that we're going to be talking about 62 and 63 and whatever it is. Uh, this is almost a home run race by this point. Uh, I don't know where the number is going to stop, but I know that you, Robbie Foley, whomever else, you are going to continue putting in good work, and I'm confident we're going to have more wins to talk about here before you retire somewhere around the age of 80, maybe 85. Exactly. I'm at the halfway point now, so who knows what the uh, the second half has has in store for me. <laughs> Congratulations, my friend. Thanks for taking Thank so much you. time. There's some fun stories here. I hope folks enjoy it and uh, can't Absolutely. wait to see more chapters added. And that was our good man, Bill Arbelin. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. You almost went to IndyCar? What? <laughs> Lighting rags on fire? Uh, in a Mazda... Twin Rotor 13B powered RX-7 in Japan? What? Uh, Yeah, I tell you, if you ever have some time or you're curious, take a look at the guy's full 
record in the sport. So I'm not talking about record of wins and losses, just how many cars he's driven. Um, he's driven them four. It's it's bonkers. Of course, we know him as BMW Bill. Before that, he was Porsche Bill, Mazda Bill. He's been a couple different Bills. Panos Bill, primarily BMW Bill. But there are so many entries that are so cool just to look through. So, uh, yeah, there are a couple of really great sports car websites. Uh, RacingSportsCars.com is one of my favorites, where just an immense library of everything the guy's ever entered and uh, been part of in sports cars. Uh, that makes for some fun reading. This is your first time listening to our little podcast. You might check out MarshallPruittPodcast.com. More than 900 episodes there for your perusal, broken down into a variety of pull-down menus, categories, and we even have a subscription page where if you're a fan of the Apple Podcasts, the Spotify's, the Google Musics, the who knows what else, got a lot of different ways you can subscribe and keep up on all the silliness that we pump out here each week. All right. Well, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is my little podcast. Thank you again to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. And thank you for listening.